You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome in to the Hoist the Colors podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Igo, the host of the Hoist the Colors podcast and the publisher of of hoistthecolors.net and uh, glad to be joining you guys having some technical difficulties on our computer in the home office so I'm actually recording this on my audio recorder as we get through this podcast had Jonathan Wagner queued up to go last night couldn't get the audio to work having a problem with our mixer that's connected to the computer so we're going to try and work that out get back to normal in the coming weeks but uh, right now making it work with the recorder and recapping ECU's win over South Florida, a big win on Thursday night, a much-needed win in terms of making it to a bowl game. East Carolina comes out on top 29-14 and have several questions on Twitter and on the Hoist Colors message board that we'll get to, as we always do in recapping this uh, game from the weekend. It's actually Saturday right now. Lots of football going on as we enjoy a rare Saturday off from uh, covering ECU. And so we'll look back at the game. Take a look ahead, too, to the remaining schedules. we got some questions in that regard as well from our uh, Hoist of Colors message board. But, man, what a, what a Thursday night. Uh, I don't think how anybody quite drew it up in terms of the weather. Um, I want to start by really giving a shout-out to the ECU marketing department and the ECU football uh, creative team just in terms of the the plan for the game with the night of the boneyard stuff i thought it was extremely cool unique awesome and they did a great job of executing it for the blackout on a national stage it's unfortunate the weather really had to wreak havoc on the deal because i thought it took away a lot of what would have been a very awesome atmosphere and so that's a shame but i mean there's nothing that they can do about mother nature it's not a dome stadium it's an outdoor venue uh, I'm just glad we weren't delayed by lightning because I couldn't have that again after what happened at Houston. Um, but even still, major kudos to the students who did show up. I mean, the Boneyard guys was, if you weren't there, the Boneyard was pretty much packed to the brim. I mean, in the corners, it was was not quite full. But, you know, given the consistent rainfall, it was impressive. And so uh, I thought the students really showed up. Now it definitely thinned out by halftime or so. and. You kind of understand that given um, the conditions and the fact that it's Halloween weekend. I mean, the students are going to party. That's what they're going to do. But they showed up, and the Pirate Club seats, quite honestly, were, I mean, maybe 20% full. I mean, it was not a great crowd. Again, weeknight game, tough to get to, especially those out of town with work on Friday plus the weather. So it just was not a good recipe for success. Um, And then I thought the, the team itself did a great job of creating its own energy throughout the game and they came out with a lot of juice a lot of energy made some pretty crucial mistakes in the first half that allowed South Florida to take a 14 to 6 lead into the locker room but then responded in a big way in the second half and that's that was my biggest takeaway from this game you know the, my biggest takeaway was just how the team responded to really a miserable start um, in terms of the, the first half. Like the way that the, the first half ended was kind of reminiscent of so many backbreaking errors we've seen ECU make over the last handful of years. And they just have not been able to recover from it. And, you know, you had the, the two fumbles. Shane Calhoun lost one over the middle after he got hit. 
Uh, you also had another fumble on the kickoff return by Tyler Sneed. But, you know, it looked like they were about to put that behind them. Had an excellent drive, I think 16 plays right before the half. And it looked like Holt Naylor's may have been in on third and goal. You know, I will say I'm the first to criticize American Athletic Conference officials. Uh, but, you know, I, from our angles, we didn't see enough on the replay to really 100% confirm that Holt Naylor's was in the end zone. Even though you can say, hey, he was probably in. I don't think you can 100% say he was in. Therefore, the call on the field has to stand in that situation. So I don't have a huge problem with that call. You know, the, the the quarterback sneak, though, that was just quite honestly a disastrous play. And to not get any points there, to not even be able to get the snap. Uh, and it, that, was, that was a crippling play, guys. I mean, I think I should have screenshotted the text messages I received after that play just to look back upon. And tweet that out after the game because the sky was falling going in the halftime. You're, you're trailing South Florida 14 to six at half. You've blown a number of opportunities. You had a a terrible execution uh, on the goal line there, and it just felt like with the rain, the terrible weather, the miserable conditions, it just felt like the game was slipping away from ECU. And in reality, if this game slips away from ECU, this you know the season almost slips away from ECU and. To respond the way they did in the second half, you know, the, the return by Tyler Sneed I thought was critical. You know, you get some positive momentum to start the second half. Everybody probably when he catches it is thinking, "Hey, don't return it." The return game hasn't done much. He just fumbled, etc. But he gets it out past the forty. That kind of you know energizes the sideline. You can see those guys get energized during that return, and then to come out, finish that first drive with a touchdown. Aylers on a beautiful toss to Omatosho in the corner of the end zone. That was crucial, and that really set the tone for the entire second half. ECU was going to outscore South Florida 23-0, to which is an impressive number. By the way, the second straight week, the defense has not allowed a point in the third or fourth quarters. You know, that's pretty damn impressive, this day and age in college football. Uh, so, Blake Carroll's group getting it done when it matters most. And ECU, at the end of the day, wins it by the final of 29 to 14 lots of good numbers on the stat sheet ecu outgained south florida 471 to 391 the pirates averaged 5.5 yards per play south florida actually averaged more yards per play 6.5 yards per play but they ran only 60 plays to 86 plays for ecu because the pirates gobbled up 38 minutes and 28 seconds of time of possession and the reason they were able to do that is you know not a great number on third down we've talked about the third down issues ad nauseum six of 17 so not a great number but an improvement over where it's been and then the big thing five of six on fourth down east carolina went five of six on fourth down of course that only unsuccessful attempt was the one on the goal line and then conversely ecu's defense holds south florida to an o for on third down o of seven on third down, South Florida did convert two of four fourth downs, but there were two fourth and shorts that the Pirate defense bowed his neck and got a stop, which was great to see, including at the end of the game, which was kind of like an exclamation point on the 29-14 to 14 victory. So uh, lots of good numbers. I mean, there's some numbers, of course, you want to clean up. If you're ECU, you give up 199 yards rushing. You give up 6.6 yards per rush. There were a few missed run fits by the defense you know you can't be giving up those 43 yard runs up the gut um just misses there and that's something they'll continue to work on but you know it, it's hard to play a perfect game defensively uh this day and age as we talked about earlier if you're holding a team to 14 points total zero points in the second half you're going to take that just about every week 
We've talked about South Florida, probably not a great team, but an improving team. You don't go out there and run for 420 yards against anybody like they did against Temple last week uh, just by accident. So I thought their offensive line played really well. Uh, they've come a long way in that part. They, they did a much better job picking up ECU's blitzes, a much better job run blocking. They've got some very good backs. So they have some talent. You're not in South Florida or you're not in Tampa, Florida without having talent. And I thought we saw that at times on Thursday night. But the main point is ECU gets back in the win column. They improve to 4-4 four and four overall, 2-2 uh, two and two in conference play. And with four games left, they need wins in half of those games, two games to reach ball eligibility for the first time in seven years. You know, Holton Aylers talked a lot about that after the game, and it's almost like at this point you want more than six, but definitely the goal is to get the six. I thought Holton played his best game of the year. You know, the numbers passing-wise don't jump out at you, 21 of 35, 220 yards, and one touchdown, but I thought he took care of the ball, he made decisive decisions, and he was throwing the ball well in a in the rainy conditions, which we, we had not really seen Holton play in these type of conditions before uh, extensively at the college level. I thought he handled it really well. Uh, and then the big thing for Holton, 11 carries, 78 yards, 7.1 yards per carry, his best rushing performance of this season. So that was great to see. You also had Rajay Harris, 22 carries, 100 yards in the score. Keaton Mitchell, 16 carries, 79 yards in the score. So three ball carriers over 75 yards, 4.9 yards per carry. As a team, C.J. Johnson and Audio Matosho made uh, a couple of great catches. It was good to see C.J. really make some contested balls on the uh, perimeter. Defensively, Bruce Bivens and Tegan Wilk combined uh, for five tackles apiece to lead the team. Bivens had a big hit on the fourth and short, which was awesome to see uh, on a run. And then you had guys just making plays all over the field. A lot of guys in the tackle column due to the amount of depth ECU plays. I think they used 23 different guys defensively and then Tegan Wilk with a pick and a forced fumble and just 20 snaps and then Malik Fleming and Sean Dorso with picks Malik with the awesome pick six and I'll tell you what man Malik has been playing extremely well all season and we give a lot of attention to Jaquan McMillan and you know deservedly so because Jaquan McMillan is really good but Malik Fleming has been flying under the radar and just continues to make plays you know he did not have a great opening game against Appalachian State but ever since then He's graded out really well on a weekly basis. I think his play has improved. He's playing with confidence. And I think right now, between Malik Fleming and Jaquan McMillan, you've got one of the best cornerback tandems in the league. Probably not as good as Cincinnati with Ahmad Gardner and Kobe Bryant. But who's to say ECU isn't the second best cornerback tandem in the league? I mean, Jaquan McMillan is one of the highest graded players in the country per pro football focus. And Malik Fleming is not too far behind. So glad to see. Uh, Malik play really well and get his moment you know he's he's played well he hasn't really had that moment maybe like Jaquan McMillan has had in terms of a pick six but he got it on on Thursday and that really changed the game in that second half all right let's take a quick break we will be right back with uh, your questions as we got a number of them on the message board and on Twitter on the other side you're listening to the Hoisty Colors podcast this episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates – 
Price and coverage match limited by state law. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Hi, welcome back into the Hoisty Colors podcast. Let's dive into your questions. Again, recapping ECU's 29-14 victory over South Florida. We'll start first on the Hoist of Colors message board. Buck Nasty, my main man, he says, what's the word on Jaquan McMillan's injury? Um, yeah, so I checked with some sources last night, and it doesn't look like it's anything serious. They are doing some follow-up evaluations, but it doesn't look like he'll miss any time in terms of you know significant time. He may be a little limited against Temple, depending on how that game goes, but I don't think it's anything to worry about. You know, he went down very late in the game, like either an ankle or a foot, maybe a leg, um, in terms of making a play down the field. You hated to see him get hurt that late, and I was worried when he went down, but like he was able to walk off the field limping a bit, but with, uh, you know, with the ability to put some pressure on his leg, which was good to see. So, you know, we'll continue to see how he bounces back. We'll be out of practice, I think, Wednesday, and we'll see if he's a go there, but I've heard that it's nothing to be uh, overly concerned about it looks like and so he should be okay going forward and we'll again we'll keep you updated on that ECU grad 04 he's got a number of questions he says what future plan improvements are there for Menzies Coliseum to be able to compete in the new American Athletic Conference I mean honestly man right now there is not a ton on the docket as far as future plan improvements I mean they did just renovate the uh the men's basketball locker rooms but that's inside the smith williams center you know they've they've done some color updating up top with menji's coliseum but there's nothing in the immediate plans as far as things to update you know they've updated some concourse stuff in the past in terms of the aesthetics of the arena but nothing in terms of hey this is what we have planned that's just not on the docket right now ecu just doesn't have the money i mean we talk about the indoor practice facility and the need that that is but Beyond that, nothing, you know, nothing is really planned. Now, I mean, I think ideally if you're rolling the money, you gut Minji's and you make it a lot more comfortable, kind of like Houston did with its uh, basketball arena and some of the other schools have done with their basketball arenas. But right now, nothing on the immediate horizon. I think realistically, if you want to renovate Minji's, the program has to win first and then you, you are able to invest some more dollars there. You know, it's the old saying, what comes, uh, you know, first, the chicken or the egg? You know, I think in reality, basketball has to win for ECU to invest more. I mean, they've already invested quite a bit in Joe Dooley and some of the facilities. Now, to take that next step, in my opinion, they have to start winning. Um, have the ECU grad asked, have the ECU versus South Florida TV ratings been released yet? If so, what is the numbers and how does it rank against other Thursday night ratings and other weeknight games? Yeah, I'll be honest, man. I just saw this question. I'm not sure. I've not seen any numbers. Typically, ESPN only releases the numbers if they're if they're very positive. Um, and so, I don't know if those are identifiable or you know they're able to be found online. I'll do some research, and if I can find some, I'll post a follow up on the board. But I don't know off the top of my head, or if I, I have not seen anything to this point. 
Uh, next question from ECU grad. He says, if the rumored indoor foot, football practice and office facility is built, what will become of the football area currently in the Ward Building? Right now, there's just the indoor football practice facility. That is the hope. There's no talk of a new football office. I do think that is needed. Again, a lot of needs, but what can be done? You know, realistically, probably just an indoor practice facility. You know, they do need to update the football offices. Uh, I think the ward building is pretty outdated. You know, they have done a lot to renovate it and to make it more aesthetically pleasing, but it's not something that's going to wow a lot of recruits, a lot of teams. Uh, that ECU is competing against have football-only buildings where the, the building is dedicated to football, not just you have football stashed away in the second story of an athletics building. But, you know, they've, they've renovated it, and they've done a lot uh, with, the, with the offices. And on the first floor, they've done a lot with the locker rooms and the hallways. But um, So it, it's good for the short-term, long-term. I do think eventually if the program continues to improve, you would like to see them invest in a football-only building. Uh, and then lastly, from ECU Grad 04, he says, in your opinion, how do you think an ECU program would rank with current competitors for f- potential future Big 12 expansion with our current circumstances? Plus, we start winning seven to nine games again each year in football. Do we have a shot? What do we need to work on? What can we control? I mean, the bottom line is ECU can control its perform- performance on the field. So they got to get back to winning football games, get back to filling the stadium. You know, the tough thing is, due to its location, due to the academic profile of the school, East Carolina is always going to be more than likely on the outside looking in, in terms of Big 12, Power 5 expansion, unless it can get to the point where it's just a good enough football brand nationally, like a Boise State, or even like a UCF has become. You have to win at a very high level to overcome some of the things ECU is up against. Location, academic profile. The city it's in, the TV market, all that stuff plays against ECU. And so the only way to overcome that is to win a lot of football games, a lot of football games, a lot of championships, build your brand. And for years, ECU had that. You know, when they were independent, they were winning at a high level. You know, obviously at times during Conference USA and then early in the American days, they had more of a national brand. But it's not to the point where it competes with a, B- a Boise or a BYU or anything like that. So got to win. Got to win a lot. Maybe that can happen in this new conference. You know, it, many of the incoming schools will have an advantage in terms of market and all that. They won't have the fan base. You know, realistically, you're probably competing against Memphis, SMU, South Florida, teams like that in terms of future Big 12 expansion if it happens further. So you would li- like to outperform then. And at some point, you got to start being respectable in basketball. You don't have to be great in basketball, but you at least have to be respectable. And as we know, ECU basketball has been quite frankly an embarrassment for years so wins and football a lot of them improvement in basketball and then you see where you stand but you know there's only so much ECU can control in terms of the other categories that some of those conferences look at all right our next set of questions comes from our old friend Berg Pirate who's never short on questions he says number one how concerning is it that our offense continues to struggle In three straight games, we've been shut out for at least a quarter, had multiple turnovers, and been abysmal on third down. Are we seeing a consistent theme of subpar offense? You know, the the offensive struggles, we talked about them so much. I mean, I don't don't know how much more we can dwell on them. One thing I will say is I really don't think the offense struggled against South Florida. A, you have to factor in the conditions. B, you have to look at the ability to sustain drives for really the first time this year consistently. 
Um, and they were on the field 38 minutes. They only punted twice. Again, the issues were the turnovers and the sloppy execution. And so, like, you know, to me, the offensive struggle, the offense struggling is more like they just can't move the football. I'd label it as more the offense continues to beat themselves. They've proven they can move the football. They even moved it pretty well against Houston. Again, they had 471 yards on a rainy night against South Florida. Balance between rushing and passing. So, like, I don't think the offense struggled against South Florida. I just think that they continue to falter in the execution phase, and they turn the ball over. I mean, if you get the touchdown before half, if you don't fumble, um, Shane Calhoun doesn't fumble. If you don't lose a possession on Tyler Sneed's kickoff return, you know, you're probably talking about 30-plus points just by the offense alone. So, you know, you lost a possession with Tyler Sneed return, you still possessed the ball for 38 minutes. That's pretty impressive in my opinion. Again, 6-17 and 17 on third down, that is an improvement over where they were. And then most importantly, they went 5-6 uh, of six or 4-5 or five on fourth down. And so a lot of those cases, they knew they had four downs and they would just call a play for four or five yards, get into fourth and short rather than go for the first down. So I thought we saw an improvement on third down. Um, we saw improvement in terms of the balance of the offense. The running game got back on track. And we do have to say that realistically, South Florida is not a good defense, so you have to factor that in. But I do think some of that was maybe neutralized by the inability to, um, to cut and to throw the football like normal due to the conditions. So I really thought the offense played better on Saturday or on Thursday, excuse me, I keep messing that up. Um, but, and yeah, I mean, you would like to see more consistent play. We've talked about that a lot. I do think at this point, the offense kind of is what it is. It'll be able to move the football consistently as long as it doesn't shoot itself in the foot against bad teams or against teams that has better matchups against and then against teams it struggles against that's due to the opposing team's talent. You know, the scheme is what it is, so the Pirates have to pretty much execute at a near-perfect level at times against really good defensive teams like Houston, like UCF, and they can't afford to make those mistakes because once you make those mistakes against a good team, you don't get multiple more chances like you do against the South Florida. So the most frustrating thing with me in regards to the offense is the continued mistakes in terms of shooting themselves in the foot, and I do think they have enough talent to go – and, and move the football fairly well against good teams. But those mistakes continue to hold them back. And then against teams that they have better matchups against, like South Florida, we see they move the football pretty consistently. And then it all comes down to how many points are they going to score based on basically the mistakes they make. I mean, I don't think South Florida really even stopped them all night. So um, we'll continue to talk about the offense. I do think they have another favorable matchup against Temple. And to be quite honest, Memphis is very bad defensively too. So they should be able to score points the next two games. And um, and I just think at the end of the day, the offense kind of is what it is at this point. Number two from Berg Pirate, were any recruits at the game worth mentioning besides um, Samuel Donka? How did they like it? You know, usually I get on to the field and take some pictures of the recruits pregame. I did not get the chance to do that in this one due to the weather. They also had, uh, they didn't have as many of the recruits hanging out on the field due to the weather. You know, I heard going in that there were going to be a couple of the commitments uh, also in town for the uh, the visit in terms of uh, Siobhan Ravel and Jamarion Franklin. I did not confirm that they made it. 
Um, but at this point, you know, those guys have already been on campus a number of times and uh, like it a lot. You know, I've talked to Jamarion Franklin a lot throughout the recruiting process, and he, re- he really likes it. Um, have not talked to uh, Siobhan as much, but uh, we'll try and catch up with him uh, soon as the Lewisburg College product uh, should be fairly close to wrapping up their season. Number three from Berg Pirate, it sounds like Night of the Boneyard went well for the students. Do we have something similar planned for the Cincinnati game so we can have a decent student turnout? That's a great question. Uh, I know that uh, ECU wants to try and come up with, you know, themes or, you know, similar type situations for games going forward to kind of boost that morale, boost that energy going to the game. Have not heard of anything specifically for Cincinnati. The toughest thing, though, is it, it's it's fall break. I mean, it's, you know, I think um, Thanksgiving break, so the students, a lot of them are going to be out of town either way. And that's something that they're going to have to overcome. So I don't even know how much you can appeal to the students in that scenario, but I'll try to find out if they have anything planned for that weekend. All right, next question from Diamond Buck 312 He says, appears the coaches have removed the leash on Holton after his performance on Thursday. Same thing happened last year, it seemed like. Coincidence or more down to development? Well, I don't think there's really been a leash on Holton in recent weeks. Maybe in the past I've heard some talk about them wanting him to run less and, and preserve his body. But, you know, there there was no leash or proverbial leash on Holton when he didn't run in those situations against Central Florida and against Houston. So I just think he, he learned from those situations and took advantage of them in terms of when he had the ability to run on Thursday, he didn't hesitate, and he got downhill. And to me, Holton Aylers, at times when he's running, he's not fully committed to the run, or he's kind of jogging along. Or, you know, when he just kind of makes up his mind 100% that he's going to run, and he gets downhill, he's such a different player. You know, he looks so much faster. You know, at times people say he looks slow in and out of the pocket and I just think that's due to more the indecisiveness rather than he's slow I think he's pretty fast once he gets going in the open field he doesn't have the quickest first step but once he gets going downhill he's a load he ran through a safety on Thursday kind of showed that ability so again a lot of it is based on matchups based on the availability that there is to run and Thursday he didn't hesitate when he saw those chances and he said in the post game he knew that South or South Florida likes to drop, you know, eight man in the coverage in a zone defense on third and long and early in the game they did that. And so Aylers was able to take advantage of that on a third and long. That then moved their defense to more of a spy uh, on those third down situations. And at that point he started to hit more of the underneath stuff as one of those linebackers was committed to him rather than committed to Tyler Sneed or the tight end. So you know, that stuff really does make a difference. I don't think it's, uh, a, a, you know, unleashing him or anything like that. I just think it's more of there were more opportunities there, and Ehlers just decided to take advantage of them um, on Thursday. Number two, with the $100 million campaign, Rice announced for improving facilities. How much better does that make you feel about the ad to the American Athletic Conference? Diamond Buck asked. I mean, it makes me feel better. Does that mean they're going to be any any better as a sports program you know i would hope so if you're going to invest 100 million dollars but rice has just a gigantic uh, endowment and a ton of money so they you know this really should have been done a long time ago i did hear this was more of a president's move to get rice into the league more so than the ad's uh we do know 
that the the presidents really play a bigger role in conference realignment than most realize. And I think that the academic profile of Rice and their ability to invest going forward did match what the American wanted. I do think it improves their standing, but in the short term, they just bring very little value to the league and in terms of immediate wins. Like I have very little faith that Rice football or Rice basketball is going to elevate the conference. Some of these other teams, I do feel like, have a chance to do that in the short and the long term. Maybe Rice long term can become the next SMU or whatever. I don't know. Um, but it is a gamble, and they're probably still, even with the investment, probably still the least uh, – you know the program that moves the needle the least for me in terms of the expansion all right moving on Dover Pirate he's got a couple of questions number one will Tegan Wilk be the starter going forward you know I, I think I don't know I think he'll play continue to play more in games that favor his style the coaches have mentioned he's more of a run stopper at this point in his career but you know the guy led Pennsylvania and in interceptions, I think, as an upperclassman or, or broke the high school record or state record or something. And he showed pretty good instincts on the back end, I thought, on Thursday, breaking on balls, making up ground. So I would like to see Tegan continue to play more. I did think it was interesting. He went to play. He played more at Sam linebacker earlier in the year. And then the last week or so, started to play more at the boundary safety, also called the buck position, and played a lot there versus South Florida. And I thought looked really comfortable. So I think you'll continue to see those guys rotate no matter who starts. I don't know if he'll start. I don't know if it'll continue to be DJ. You know, Sean Dorso had his moments in that game as well. So they want to continue to play all those guys. But I do think he needs more than 20 snaps a game. There's no doubt about that. Um, number two on Dover Pirate, what was your take on the Fernando Fry personal foul, the safety, and the one-foot placement after Holton's run near the end zone? Uh, the Fry personal foul is a tough one, man, because – Technically speaking, I mean the the guy's still going. the 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 ball is live, and so you're you're trying to make a block. You know, you're always taught to play through the whistle. There was no whistle at that point, so like I can see the argument both ways. I think that realistically, you you know you probably just have to have awareness there to to hold off. Um, you probably just have to not go hammer the guy in that situation you know technically the runner was still going the whistle hadn't blown but the defender was just kind of standing there around the tackle and so maybe go over and shove him or go over and like block him but don't just like clock him and it was it was a clean hit you know he didn't hit him up top and so it's tough for me to like really get mad at Fernando Fry for blocking somebody cleanly during the midst of the play technically but also sometimes you just got to have the awareness to, hey, in that situation, you know, is it really going to make a difference if I come out of nowhere and, and, and de-cleat this guy? Um, so it's it's tough. You know, that's a tough teaching point. I would really like to know Mike Houston's take on it because you always teach your team to play through the whistle and to, to, to play physical. And I thought Fernando was doing that, but it may be in this day and age in college football where there's such a – you know, such a, a fine line between doing that and also keeping the game safe. Maybe you just try to be a little bit more aware there. But it, it is tough both ways. Um, the safety was the safety. You know, it, the ball did not lead the end zone. Um, but it was also a missed offsides probably on the, on the play. So I don't know if the American looks at that replay and says, we missed an offsides. 
and therefore we can't call it a safety because we're going to get crucified. But then you miss the safety because the offside is not a reviewable play. So again, the American officials suck. That's all I have to say about that. Um, and I'll be the first one to call them out both ways, for or against ECU. Dover also has the one-foot placement after Holton's run near the end zone. Yeah, that one was tough because, I, you know, he probably got in. And I think replay kind of showed that. But you could not 100% conclusively say that he got in. And so I actually do agree with the officials there that it's tough to overturn that based on the replays we saw that he 100% got in. So I, I don't have a big problem with that. All right, number uh, number. Let's see. Uh, next question, I should say. Buckwild seventeen. He says, "I think we beat Temple." So then it comes down to Navy or Memphis for the sixth win. Not an easy task. Who do you think we beat for the sixth win? You know, Memphis. Despite their up and down nature, I still think they're very tough at home. Not that Navy isn't. I just feel like Memphis is the more talented team than Navy. I think they're the better team. If they're playing at their best, they're going to be tough to beat on their home field. And so I say Navy. Now that said, you know, I think Memphis will be the favorite over ECU for that reason. I think Navy, ECU could be favored at Navy or Navy could be a slight favorite just based on the option and based on their style of play and playing at home. So I think realistically you got a better shot to win at Navy, but I think ECU can win at Memphis if it plays well. I think that can be a very high scoring game. Memphis has a lot of offensive talent, but they have some defensive issues. Uh, Bugwild continues, I think we beat everyone but Cincy and we give them all they can handle. Another question, do we know exactly when Houston, Cincinnati, and UCF leave or has that been determined? I think ECU is poised to take the conference over soon. Uh, Houston, Cincinnati, and UCF, I don't know if it's been officially decided, but all reports indicate that after next year, after the 2022 season, is when they will head out and then all the new teams will enter the American. So 2023, you're probably going to have the new American and the new Big 12. And so that's what it's shaping out to be right now. All right, let's move into the Twitter questions as we continue on here. Tarbara Bill on Twitter asks, do we ever figure out what brand peanut butter is being used? Skippy, store brand, Peter Pan. If you don't know what Tarbara Bill is referring to, he's referring to the glorious peanut butter pies that were asked about several times last year after every win. We have not had a peanut butter pie question this year. And so I do not know what type of peanut butter is used, but we do know that that is Coach Houston's favorite pie, Victoria's Pie, on Victory uh, Sundays, I believe, on Sunday night victory dinner, winner's dinner, whatever they call it. And I would prefer not to know because I don't really care, and I'm glad we're not getting questions about the peanut butter pie this year. I'm glad we're getting more questions about football because football is what we do. We don't do cooking. All right, number, <laughs> number next question uh, from Cam. He says, if Cincy gets tripped up along the way and ECU wins out, could Black Friday be for the conference championship? Yeah, I mean, the, the reality is if Cincinnati were to lose a game and ECU wins out, the Pirates would then be playing to get into the championship game, potentially. Now, a lot depends on what happens with Houston and SMU. Those two teams are currently undefeated in conference play, and they play each other, and then Houston has the tiebreaker over ECU. So it, it's going to be tough for ECU to jump it would be even if ECU wins out, it's gonna to be tough for them to jump Cincinnati, SMU, and Houston, as all of them are currently unbeaten in league play. Now, as I sit here and record this on early Saturday afternoon, Cincinnati's in a dogfight with um, 
with Tulane in the third quarter. They'll probably win that game. Tulane's got their backup quarterback going. But uh, Cincinnati still has to play SMU. And so that, that'll be a big game later this season. Beyond that, they have Tulsa at South Florida. So they're probably going to, you know, SMU is really their only test before ECU. Uh, SMU's got some tricky games left, including Houston, including a few others. And Houston has a, you know, Houston's got a relatively easy schedule. They don't play Cincinnati. So it's going to be tough for ECU to jump both of those teams or all three of those teams. You know, they could conceivably jump Cincinnati if Cincinnati loses the game, then ECU beats them in the season finale. In the season finale, so uh, ECU can only do what it can do, and that's to win out. There is a scenario though that ECU could still make the conference championship game if they win out. Again, the odds are slim, but it's possible. Blake asked CJ Johnson had a nice game catching and blocking, but he required constant attention on the sidelines from Big John and Mike Houston to keep him away from the refs and opposing players after the whistle. Any idea of the root of this huge talent, but at what point is it just too much? I mean, the, the thing with CJ is, and you know, he's got a ton of talent. This has just been a consistent deal with CJ now for for three years since his freshman year. He is the he's a very emotional player. He wears his emotions on the sleeve, and the scouting report for CJ from the opposing teams is, hey, talk to him, grab him, hold him, try and get in his head. That is the scouting report. It's well known at this point. They know how to try and neutralize him. Now, I give CJ a ton of credit. Because on Thursday, he backed up that emotional play, that talk, and and delivered some huge catches. And so, I know this. I know ECU has sat down with him. I know the players have sat, like, you know, his teammates, the coaches, different coaches, head coach, strength staff. Everyone has sat down with him, tried to talk to him. It's kind of just who he is at this point. He's going to play the game emotionally charged, and that's just who he is. So, that's, you know, there's, there's some good with that. He gets very juiced up after big plays, but there's also can be some bad with that in terms of he can get penalized. But, you know, I will say this. I don't – if if he's been penalized this year, it's maybe just been once. In the past, he's he's been penalized quite a bit in terms of post, you know, unnecessary roughness, that sort of deal. So he, he's, been, he's been doing a good job of not drawing the flag this year, and so hopefully that continues and hopefully he doesn't hurt his team. Because it becomes too much if you're hurting your team weekly in terms of drawing penalties and that sort of stuff. So it does seem like he's reined back a little bit. I know his his sophomore year at times was a major issue. It also didn't help. There were no fans in the stands, no crowd noise, so you could hear every word he was saying if you're an official. And so he's got to continue to try and reel that in, but at some point you kind of just are what you are, and we know that he's an emotional player at this point. All right, Preston's got a couple of questions. He says, if ECU were to make a bowl, what bowls do you expect would want ECU and what want, what ones would ECU AD want for the team slash the fans? Well, if, he, if ECU makes a bowl, there's going to be a lot of bowl games that want ECU because the Pirate fan base, A, loves to travel, and B, has not traveled in a long time, and that equals a lot of fans traveling for bowl season. So there's no doubt in my mind that the Myrtle Beach Bowl is the best location for both ECU and the bowl itself. I mean, ECU would probably take at least ten to 15,000 fans to that game. I don't even – I think that stadium holds 15,000, Coastal Carolina Stadium. Uh, but that would be an ideal location, easy drive, good, uh, you know, destination in, de- in December, good weather. The Cure Bowl in Orlando also has some ties to East Carolina um, and would be a fairly, you know, fairly easy flight. I won't say easy trip. 
because it's still a long drive, but it's an easy flight to make. And so that would be a very uh, sought-after one for ECU and the AD. You know, the Military Bowl, I think, could be a very realistic one as well. You have uh, more of a matchup there because that's matched up with an ACC school. You know, what happens if ECU could face North Carolina in that game or even Virginia Tech or whoever? So that's more of your primetime matchup, and it's a drivable game in Annapolis in the military bowl. So I think those are your three most likely. You also have the Fenway Bowl in Boston, which would be cool. The first ever bowl game to be played at Fenway Park, the first ever football game would be unique. I don't know how many fans want to go to Boston in December when it's 14 degrees, um, but I think it would be a unique game. And that one also is against an ACC school, I believe. So those are kind of your main ones. You're probably not going to Texas. Um you know, you're probably not going to Hawaii realistically. And so those are the ones that I would look for if ECU gets the six wins. Number two, with reports of new American Athletic Conference teams making facility investments like recent reports, what facility improvements are ECU's athletic director likely to make in the next five years? Well, I think number one is uh, the, the indoor practice facility in terms of wanting to invest there. There's been considerable discussion behind the scenes. I do think that that becomes more of a realistic possibility if you go to a bowl this year maybe you can launch a campaign in january to really ramp up the spending the funding for that deal uh the other thing that not has has not gotten a lot of run but the grady white boats donations um from i think a year ago at this point or so that will go to building a new uh, strength and conditioning center more for the olympic sports over near the baseball and soccer stadium you know, all the athletic teams currently work out in the Murphy Center, and it's just too much, too much foot traffic in and out of the Murphy Center for uh, that many sports teams. So they really want to build another strength program or strength facility, which is badly needed, on the other side of the athletics campus to really help balance that. And that's kind of already in the works, and that will be done shortly. So those are two things that need to be done. Um, you know, fairly soon. And then long-term, you know, we talked about it. Basketball at some point has to make an investment inside Menji's Coliseum, but I just don't know until you get some more wins how realistic that is. Uh, and there's also other things that need to be done for other sports as well, but, you know, it's just they're non-revenue sports at the end of the day, so they fall more on the back burner. All right, Daniel Bauer has got a couple of questions. He says, uh, or he's got one question, thoughts on the significant drop in quarterback pressure this week during the Houston game our Sharks lived in the backfield it did look like we intentionally brought fewer regularly so it might just be a scheme thing just one of your thoughts in case you saw different so you know one thing I noticed going into the Houston game they pretty much just keep their five offensive linemen in you know sometimes they're back but they don't do a whole lot of blitz pick up extra guys keeping extra guys in and so they were vulnerable to the blitz, and I thought ECU did an excellent job of attacking them. South Florida did a ton of keeping their tight ends in, keeping multiple, uh, you know, a back or a tight end in to try and pick up those blitzers. And their offensive line did extremely well in blitz pickup. You know, they communicated well. ECU blitzed a decent amount. They also got rid of the ball quick. They had a clear game plan to attack the seams during a safety or linebacker blitz, and they really hit. A lot of those little RPO pop passes over the middle, especially in that first half, that kind of uh, hurt ECU. So I thought they had a great plan, and I thought that they did a good job neutralizing ECU. You know, running the ball well always slows down the pass rush, but I just thought their offensive line performed much better than Houston. Houston was bigger, not as quick. I thought South Florida 
had better feet up front from what I could see up top. And so sometimes you just have to credit the opponent. They were very well prepared. Their offensive line played extremely well against uh, Temple a week prior. I thought they continued that trend in the right direction. Just talking to some people around the program from ECU going into this South Florida game, they were very concerned about the talent level of South Florida's offensive line. You know, Not a great team overall, but they are talented up front. They have a very good offensive line coach. So I think that had a good amount of uh, deal to do with what we saw in terms of lack of pressure on Saturday or on Thursday compared to the Saturday-Houston game. And then also ECU did not blitz as much. They blitzed about 50% of the dropbacks against Houston. That number was lower, probably closer to 30 35% against South Florida. And so that made a, uh, a difference as well in terms of the pressure getting home. So um, combination of scheme and personnel, a little bit of everything there. Uh, Lee says, was there anything mentioned in the postgame on Friday as to why Holton was finally allowed to run versus South Florida? Again, I think it was just more him making decisions more than him being allowed to run. I think it was a situation where South Florida did some different things and coverage that allowed him to escape the pocket and really run the football consistently. Uh, there were some design runs. You know, those design runs have been there. They're built into the arc, into the read option. On many of those handoffs, you'll see Holton fake the keep, but oftentimes he doesn't keep it. Well, on Thursday, he kept it, and he got some very positive yardage. And, you know, they did a few RPOs as well where he kept it, tried to hit the tight end, the tight end was covered in the flats, and then he would run it. And that's you see that a ton with Cincinnati. Desmond Ritter runs that play all the time where they had the RPO, either he can hand it off, throw it to the tight end, to the flat, or run it. And they run that play probably 10, 15 times a game. And Holton ran it twice on Thursday in terms of where he kept it and ran it and got positive yards both times. So I thought that was good to see. That was a nice wrinkle. I don't know if it's been in the playbook or what, and we just haven't seen it or we have, they have not executed it right. But I thought that made a difference and worked well versus South Florida. And so it was a combination, again, of scheme, decision-making, personnel. And I do think we need to see more of Holton Ayler's running with authority running with decisiveness going forward because I think he's a much different quarterback in those situations. All right, that'll do it, it looks like, for our questions. Let me double-check here before we get out of here. Refresh, make sure there's no new questions in. Nope. All right, that'll do it for our questions, and that'll do it for our show. So, again, appreciate you guys rolling along, as always, and bringing the questions. Always good to get a Thursday night win out of the way, Thursday night game out of the way. That way we can kind of regroup over the weekend should do the the coaches and players some good as well gives coaches uh, some time to look ahead to temple get started with an extra day's rest um, or a few extra days preparation gives the players some extra days rest so I I think this is a very beneficial situation now that ECU was able to get through this thing I said they just had to get through it with a win and I thought they did that and uh, did it with authority in the second half obviously it was big they were able to do that over these last few days. All right, well, that'll do it for the Hoisty College Podcast. Again, trying to work out our technical difficulties and get some guests back on the show. In the meantime, appreciate you guys' questions as it helps carry the show, lead the discussion as well. And we'll be back with you early next week as we look forward to the Temple game as the Pirates go for win number five. And it's hard to believe, but five wins would be a, a major achievement given where the program has been. It's been six years since the Pirates had five wins, and it would get them back to the point where really things were before they were fractured after the firing of Ruff McNeil. So you could take a big step as a program this week 
by defeating Temple at home. So we'll bring that to you all next week in terms of our pregame coverage. Thanks again for listening to the Hoist the Colors podcast. Mm-hmm.